I mean, I don't think it's going to happen immediately, right? But it is crazy that they got Minneapolis to say, okay, we're going to, you know, liquidate our, our police department. Yeah. And right? I, yeah, I wonder, I wonder if that, like, I wonder if that was just all public pressure, you know? It does seem like it was because it doesn't, like, why would they ever have had any pressing, like, impetus to do that before? Yeah. I mean, right? It's, yeah, like, it's, I guess it's just like public pressure and, you know, being able to see that, like, the police department as it stands in Minneapolis was probably, like, never going to be able to have a healthy relationship with that community ever again. Welcome back to I'm the Villain. Today, we are going to be talking about defunding the police, right? Because obviously that is what's trending right now. And it's like, (laughs) and it's like, but it's like a seriously, like, I think interesting question to, especially because it fits in exactly kind of with our theme of like, what are the norms that, you know, people have taken for granted that millennials are questioning. And this is hardcore. One of those norms, like literally as of the last couple of weeks, you know, yeah. I do not think that defunding the police or, or abolishing the police was something that was ever in the public conversation prior to like this incident. Yeah, I I think especially with emphasis on the word public, right? Like, oh, yeah, for sure. There are definitely things, private conversations, I think. And there are things that I've heard like in ways that I like from people that I considered like kind of fringe opinions, you know, like yeah. my most lefty of friends I'd heard language around like defunding or like abolishing police or like community policing and things like that but i don't think i think that it's been an institution that we've been critical of for a long time but i don't think that the narrative of of like of like yo legitimately maybe we shouldn't have a police force has been a thing that's been mainstream for like ever until now so like for me I've seen that like kind of Instagram post going around, right? Where it's like really brightly colored, right? And they're like, oh, they like present a situation where they're like, oh, imagine if, you know, instead of like, you know, you if you are in a situation where you are experiencing like domestic abuse or something, right? Mm-hmm. Blah, blah, blah. Instead of calling the police, they had like a crisis responder come and, you know, de-escalate the situation and you would have the resources you need an hour later, right? Right. The, the post uh, on that series that I was most skeptical of was the one that actually involved violence, right? Because I was like, look, you're never going to get an unarmed person to go into a violent situation and like... What what is that gonna what would that even look like? I just feel like it would be so difficult to yeah. you were incredibly get skeptical someone to of do the that. idea of like responding to a violent situation with a person that's built to be nonviolent. Right, because literally like how many people are gonna wanna that would be I mean, obviously I would be super scared to do that if I knew somebody was being super violent and like, you know, I I just go in with nothing. Right. right? And I and I echoed that I don't, I, yeah, I, I, I echoed the confusion around that. Like I, I got, I feel like I get, and was on board with some of the lesser cases, like, you know, not using police to respond to homeless people, for example, or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, and I assume that you're going to shed some light on this with the cure violence stuff, but I still don't really 
really know what that yeah, would be. Yeah, like. which is crazy too because there's this organization that was started back in 2016 called MPD 150, which is this organization that has been like creating a lot of the graphics that have been trending on Instagram recently that apparently has like was a is actually a huge organization or I guess seemingly huge because they have are super prolific. I have no idea how many people are actually part of it, but they created this like 36 page report like basically for the 150th anniversary of the Minneapolis Police Department forming, right? As kind of an audit saying, okay, is this an effective, has this been an effective, you know, record of policing over these last 150 years? Has it really had a major impact in like increasing safety in our community? And it was super robust. And it's kind of like, wow, like, they have been having this conversation. I just didn't. I just didn't know about it at all. Yeah. So you're on this MPD website, and or, or they like, you know, they um, they redirected you to a website. And what's the organization called? It's called Cure Violence. Cure Violence. Right? And yeah. they're blowing your mind. They're really blowing my mind. Okay. So, literally, look. I'm gonna send this link to you. Right. Mm-hmm. They have this map of like the various cities in the U.S. where they're working, mm-hmm. and how much they have reduced violence there by taking this like kind of kind of public health approach to violence. Uh huh. And like this map is crazy. Okay. In the U.S., up to 73% reduction in shootings and killings implemented in 20-plus cities with multiple independent evaluations. Like, what the fuck? One of them says, like, okay, Baltimore, 56% reduction. New York City, 63% reduction. Chicago, in five of eight communities, 100% reduction. They just got rid of violence. Like, (laughs) what? (laughs) What? (laughs) What? 100 percent reductions in retaliation killings in five of eight. Oh, in retaliation killings, and then yeah, 40, 70, 41 to seventy three percent for just general shootings yeah. and killings. Okay, so what do you? What's the model? The model is they. So the the cure violence page doesn't specifically go into like how to de-escalate in the moment, but they do tell you about the the model that they use, right? Where they're like, okay, when there's a violent incident, right? We follow up with both parties, right? We follow up with the person who's the victim. Like literally they go to the hospital, right? And go like talk to that victim Mm -hmm. to try to make sure that there's no retaliation, to try to talk to them about what happened, right? And like try to lower the risk that that person is going to retaliate right right and then they go to the person who committed the violence right after they committed the violence and say hey you know like let's talk about what the issue was here right and they try to get people in the community involved right so they're like okay if this is like a domestic abuse situation who is in their community who do they live with who are their parents like that kind of thing who are their friends right And they try to build these community organizations so that they can get those other people to intervene, right, whenever there's a violent situation. So, for example, right, um, they have 
this about page right on on what we do and i'm i'm just gonna read like they're like okay prevent retaliations when a shooting happens trained workers immediately work with victims friends and family and anyone else connected to the event right to like talk to them about what happened and try to mediate right um and then they follow up sometimes for months to ensure that the conflict does not become violent again right um Uh and then after every shooting right they organize like this response where they have members of the community come forth and present testimonies like objecting to the shooting and saying why they're like we do not want this to be happening in our community to provide some kind of like social stigma right or so like try to change the norms around these people like not being like we we don't think gang violence is cool. We don't like, you know, think that you have more cred for it. Like we're really upset that this happened and we want it to stop, you know? Right. And they also coordinate with tenant councils, new block clubs, neighborhood associations, and distribute materials to like leaders in those groups to try to have those people also become kind of these community like de-escalation people. Right. Right. So like, I get like, okay, maybe during like the violent, but like even when you call the police, I bet a lot of the time it's like after the violence has already been committed anyway, right? I don't actually even know how often in a police situation when you like have had the opportunity to get to the phone and call the police and the police have gotten there, if it's usually ever an actively violent situation anyway. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like most of the time when police are like you know having to having a shootout or whatever mm. i feel like it's like armed robberies and things like that you know like mm-hmm. active situations where like people are like actively trying to do harm or whatever um so i i think what i like about this approach is that it isn't it is like it, it has it has already accepted that like violence occurs and it's like a follow up from that and this, like, the, like, the, it seems like in really, really deep in the center of this model is the idea that, like, violence begets more violence and that people don't kill each other for no reason. And I feel like that is a narrative that's often lost when talking about, like, gang violence or, like, black-on-black crime or whatever, you know, like, it's like... Oh, yeah, like, you know, gangs are just gangs and they kill people because they're in gangs. And, like, you know, we've seen from testimony from people that are in gangs and, like, just from, like, basic human nature that people don't kill people for no reason. And a lot of times that reason is because of retaliation, right? And then it becomes a chain. Yeah. Um, And, like, I imagine that, like, you could take that approach with a lot of stuff, like, not just shootings, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, someone gets brought in like or someone gets like convicted for like you know a drug crime like selling drugs yeah and and like i imagine you could take a similar a similar community driven approach to that and be like yo like people are like yo we don't want drugs being sold in our communities like it's not cool and i think yeah i think the model sounds really cool so cure violence they're kind of they're kind of like I guess just staying on top, uh, like in sort of in these cities. I wonder if they've established partnerships 
with any like citywide institutions or if they just like started these initiatives themselves. You know? Yeah, they did. I looked it up for D.C. And D.C., they're working with the office of the attorney general. And like there's like a whole the the D.C. initiative is called Cure the Streets. And I think that literally just seems like it seems like it just started in 2018. Oh, interesting. I'm, I would be interested to see in how that's working. Yeah, definitely. I don't see any particular um, like statistics on their website so far. Um, but I, I haven't gone into some of the PDFs that they have, so maybe there are statistics there somewhere. Um, well, actually, let me back up. I was reading the MPD 150 report, and they go through literally, like, you know, like, item by item of being like, okay, how have they responded to mental health, homelessness, traffic stops, domestic violence, you know, sex trafficking, drug use, right? And every single one of them, they have like been like yeah it hasn't been effective in bringing down rates of any of these things <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> and not only that but like in terms of the actual violence being perpetrated in most of the in a lot of these violent situations it was the police themselves that actually started the violence right yes. like it wasn't like there was a pre-existing shootout happening and then the police came and like kept the peace or like mediated that shooting or whatever it like it was the the police were the ones who started shooting right, right. and like it's so funny because for a lot of these things they were like yeah like you know for sexual violence it doesn't make a lot of sense to call the police because statistically the police are the ones who commit the most sexual violence. <laughs> yeah, I've been seeing they, that go around Instagram for the last like day, right? We, yeah. We talked yesterday about <laughs> the waves of information on, on Instagram and how yeah. it really does evolve. Like, you know, like, so we, we, we were talking, <laughs> you and I were talking yesterday about how like five days ago, the idea of like defunding the police was big and that like Instagram was devoted to teaching people what that meant. Right. Just like what defunding was. Then as of like two to three days ago, Instagram has been all about just like teaching people how to advocate for it. And now as of today, I've seen a lot of stuff about like police committing sexual violence against people. Yeah. And how like our friend um shared something on instagram that was like something like 32 percent of uh or like no in the 60s like percent of oh no i think it was 32 percent of trans sex workers are like raped by police yeah and like what the fuck is going what's going on out there yeah i mean it literally seems like it's also same for domestic abuse they're like why would you call a domestic abuser when you're <laughs> like yeah. to come help you when you're experiencing domestic abuse and i bet the thing the other thing is just like i mean all those people who are the victims of the police's domestic abuse probably like have nothing have no recourse right yeah so we <laughs> like that must be such an awkward situation if you are the cop that's called on your fellow cop right yes. what would you do like when you arrived at the scene what do you do yeah i saw a um I either saw or heard, you know, that's one of these like stories that, you know, you've heard at some point or read, it might've even been a podcast, but essentially it was like this woman who, um, had been raped in her car. Like someone was like waiting in her car and raped her. And the guy that did it 
in like very classic villain fashion was like if you call the cops i will know and i will make your life a living hell you know yeah she calls the cops anyway and then her rapist responds to her call like her rapist was the cop (laughs) and and she she did what i think a lot of people wouldn't do she immediately was like no you're the guy who raped me like was talking to like and like it wasn't just him like a like a couple of officers responded to the call and so he's and so she immediately started pointing the finger and i can't remember how it ended but you know like it's just like such a like a such a sinister but like real ass narrative that's going on wait so she did that because the recording would then like have that on it or she something? did it she, yeah, yeah i mean she i think she I don't know if body cams were happening at the moment, but yeah. it was like him and his partner and she like, you know, looked at the other person that wasn't her rapist and was like, this is the guy that raped me. Like legit, yeah. like yeah. in my car. <laughs> and, yeah. and I know that the story doesn't end there. I don't know. I can't remember how it ended. Yeah. It's like, literally, uh, what the fuck does that other guy do? Like apprehend his. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's know? never, yeah, you know, it's, but the, obviously not right because yeah. that's not even how it works with rape cases that don't involve a cop no, like you no, know nothing happens at all like yeah i mean in less than like what 25 percent, like less than a quarter of rapes are actually rapists are actually convicted but and i think all of this kind of draws all this information kind of draws into the idea um which is also going on around instagram of like a basic social contract not being fulfilled and i think that it's interesting because you know this this is kind of being magnified through the lens of what it's like to be a black person in america but what we're seeing is that cops really aren't fulfilling social contract for i think most people (laughs) like there are lots of demographics of people that serve to be actively harmed by some of the stuff that police are doing. Um, and there's there's a funny tweet that's been going around Instagram where it's like, whenever someone says, well, you know, cops kill white people too. And I'm like, well, why aren't you mad about it? Like, like, like you should be mad that cops are killing people that look like you, regardless of what the color is. And maybe we should... Maybe we should back up and give a little bit of background about, like, why we're talking about all this stuff. Which is just that, like, I think you and I were both interested in figuring out what defunding the police would look like. And I think I personally was someone that, I think I was someone that had one of those, like, visceral reactions when when I, like, when I first heard the phrase defund the police because I think I have a lot of trouble more so in the past and still do, but you know, have a lot of trouble imagining a world that isn't, you know, policed by in the, in the, in the traditional way that we are familiar with. But I just, I started doing some research and found a really informative Twitter thread about, um, from a guy that was like, Hey, me and my org did the numbers to figure out, you know, if the measures that we take for police reform are effective and, they're just not <laughs> things like yeah. body cams and implicit bias training. Um, and it's, I'm worried. All right. I'm not, I'm not worried. I wonder if, do you know if MPD 150 
did that report independently or were they a contractor? No, they are not even really, they were not like paid by any particular organization. It was purely a group of people that got together for that one purpose is to investigate defunding the police and like whether the police department has been effective or not. And I think one of the wildest parts about all of this is that like it, it did take some random people to just do it. Right. And we, yeah, you know, would expect to see, I think at least for me, if the police have been a presence for this long, I would expect to see if like, you know, some sort of effective, positive change or like of their impact. Right. And because if, you know, I, one of the, I think one of the expectations of a, of a police department or one of the understandings is like that they act as somewhat of a, of a, a deterrent for crime. And it seems like <laughs> one of the many things that the MPD 150 report found was that that is just actually pretty aggressively not true. Yeah, I mean, it actually really reminds me of our military industrial complex episode, right? Because like we built up all of these systems during war times, right? And then it's sort of like now they need to have a reason to like now to that all going. of these gun factories exist, they're like they need a reason to keep making guns. So they keep fabricating these like more and more reasons to go to war and shit like that. Right. It's like kind of the same thing with the police department is I feel like they're very much in a situation where it's like they're trying they're like a hammer and they're trying to find nails everywhere. Right. Yeah. It's like obviously like you you don't necessarily need to put. billion into the LA police department or whatever for them to sit around like, you know, trying to give out speeding tickets. Yeah. Right. We have literal robots that can do that. (laughs) Yeah. And we know that that is true. For example, with the stop and frisk policy in New York, when it was in its prime, officers literally had quotas, right? Of Like they literally had to, you know, harass a certain number of people and they were told to go to these areas that were already over police because they were, you know, laden with minorities. And then like what <laughs> only the most logical thing happened from there, which is that a bunch of minorities got fucking thrown against walls and frisked for no reason. Right. Which is only like, it seems like obviously would incite violence. Right. <laughs> like if that's happening to you every day, why the fuck would you just like sit around and like, you know, be content with the situation. Right. Yeah. Once It always, it all comes back to this like super basic social contract that we're supposed to have with the police yeah and and i was kind of bought into that social contract until relatively recently before i started reading a lot of the stuff where i was just like yeah like you know assuming that we don't want to be in like a a lawless state of nature we need something to kind of like you know keep our society you know functioning in a way that like you know we have rule of law, but like it does actually genuinely seem now that I've like kind of looked at a lot of these statistics that it doesn't seem like it does do much deterrent at all. <laughs> no, it doesn't right? because it does. It's it seems, you know, a lot. I don't want to say it's easier to commit crimes if you um, if you like, quote unquote, know what you're doing. But it just it seems like the police are kind of pick and choose what they want to respond to and at the end of the day <clears throat> make decisions about who to convict like that are largely not based in fact and evidence <laughs> yeah um i've seen as someone that listens to like a ton of true crime podcasts there are so many episodes 
about someone that got convicted for a murder that they just they they just shouldn't have gotten convicted for just like under the under the idea of like reasonable doubt you know um and the way that this happens is that oftentimes the cops will respond to like a missing persons or a murder case and they they just choose the person that they think did it for whatever reason oftentimes laden in some kind of bias but they'll be like no we think this person did it and then instead of like running down all the leads to close doors to prove that that person did it they'll just ignore any other leads and only focus on this person <laughs> yeah and when i say that I, i've heard literally over a dozen of true crime cases like this like i'm not exaggerating yeah <laughs> yeah but i mean like maybe this is so like as a white person like i'm half i'm half chinese but i'm half white right i literally do get this like you know kind of internal peace of mind of feeling like okay like if i if i came home and there was a murderer in my home or if there was like you know somebody who came into my house i i basically like do feel like if I called the police, you know, like I have this sense of like, yeah, the police would come and like I would be probably in a more safe situation after that happened. Right. As a black man, have you ever had that? Like, have you felt like that? Or like, do you also kind of like feel like that in any way? I mean, obviously we do. We did already know that there were all of these problems. Yeah. Right. With the like with the police generally. Right. Systemically. Yeah, I don't... That's a really good question. I... I feel like I... The first time that I became, like, really, really, really viscerally aware that this institution wasn't for me was probably, like, college-y times. Like, around, like, the Trayvon Martin murder was when it really kind of sank in. And before that... I don't want to say that I hadn't been told. I, I, you know, I think that I received the same warnings that most black children receive, whether it be, um, where, whether it be, Hey, be careful when you're walking around for what, for X reason, or like, be careful with what you're doing. Um, like, I think the narrative was avoid the cops. Right. And the best way to avoid the cops was to not commit any crimes. And then, and also just, like, not be around when they're around. <laughs> um, but then, like, do you feel like if you came home and there was a murderer, like, whatever, like, that super unlikely scenario? Like, yeah, like, like the home, invi- like the home invader scenario. The yeah. I would feel, I, I, I feel like I would call the cops and on the phone with the cops, I'd be like, I, the homeowner, am a black man. Like, (laughs) I like I would legit be like, I'm a large black dude. Like, when tell the officers when they come in here, not to shoot me, not to shoot me. (laughs) Like, yeah, you know, like I think that, (laughs) and and even then, I wouldn't be confident that they wouldn't. But at least maybe someone could play my nine one one call and and, in court and have somebody convicted (laughs) for my murder. You know, like like. But, you know, I don't, I generally don't, I certainly don't feel safer when the cops are around. For sure. And I don't feel, and when, like, when I'm evaluating risk in my head, the the risk levels go up when I can, cons- like, when I consider cops, right? Um, and that kind of, like, you know, aggressive emergency, like, home invader scenario, like, yeah, I would call the cops. But 
I would do it because I would feel like I didn't have anything else that I could do, you know, like, um, I would, but I, I would consider myself the first line of defense. Like I would be like, I would really feel like, okay, I probably need to solve this problem before cops even get here or something like that. <laughs> get out my baseball bat. Yeah. And you like- know, and just like handle the situation myself. And also because like, I don't. Um, yeah, I just, I don't want cops around. I don't want, I don't want them like in my house. I don't want them, you know, like it's, it's weird. And, um, this, <laughs> this reminds me of, so I live in Petworth in DC. And when we first moved, when me and my roommates first moved to this neighborhood, we went to like a Petworth, uh, neighborhood association meeting. And the, like the, ch- the chief of Petworth police was there. And he was like, and they had this, this wild program where they were like, we want to give you free cameras for your house, free surveillance cameras. And all that we asked for in exchange is that whenever we want access to that, inf- to that footage, we can just get it. And they were like, it's going to make the community safer. Like it's going to make like, everyone's going to be good. And and there, you know, there are a lot of like families and they're like, yeah, like this is great. It's such a great program. So excited for this. And we were like, dude, fuck no, there's not a chance. <laughs> yeah. Like, what do you mean? No. <laughs> like it just, yeah. And I, and I think that like, is a good, a good sort of characterization of like the mistrust that me and I think a lot of millennials feel versus like maybe some of our, some of our older counterparts. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, <laughs> I think that, I think that I don't, I think that I, I'm curious to know if other, you know, white, white or white presenting people, when they like drive by a cop on a highway, that's like scanning people for speeding. If they're like, if their hearts drop as aggressively as mine does. That's certainly, I've never had that happen, but also I don't speed. So, Fair enough. <laughs> so like I'm not worried in the first place, but the one interaction I've ever had with a cop is very funny. I <laughs> <laughs> was going, I was like, it was on my birthday actually. And I was in the car with my mom. I was driving to Bertucci's because I was super into Bertucci's at the time. And so that's where I wanted to go for my birthday. And so I accidentally went the wrong way down a one-way street, which was actually a pretty significant one-way street. There were like multiple lanes and I just hadn't seen the one-way sign because there was like a tree or something. And the cop was had been right behind me right when I turned down the one-way. Yeah. And I didn't actually realize there was a cop behind me at all. I had I was like I was like freaking out because I saw cars coming towards me and I was like, fuck, like what am I gonna do? Yeah. And the cop immediately saw that I had made a you know, turn the wrong way down the one way, turned his lights on and like basically saved my life because then all the oncoming cars knew to like go around. Yeah. And he drove me to like a parking lot and he was like asked me for my driver's license. I didn't even have my driver's license on me. (laughs) (laughs) And he he had to go look me up in his system. And when he went to go look me up in his system, he came back, he was like Oh, it's your birthday. (laughs) And I was like, yeah. And he was like, you know what? I would have given you an $800 ticket, but you know what? Just, just go. You're fine. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, dude, if that if 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 you were black or if that were me that, that happened to, he would come back and be like, "Oh, it's your birthday. I'm gonna shoot you in the face." <laughs> He's your gift. You yeah. fucking slime ball and like, yeah. like he would like crumple up the ticket and throw it in my face. He'd be like, "Make sure you show up in court." Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that. I think that one of the realities with like being a black person and like you know corresponding with the police is and this is like this is a reality that you know it's just generally true about being a black person is that you are always questioning whether or not the treatment you're receiving is any better or worse because you're black yeah and i remember like there are you know obviously there are many systemic reasons why like i think traffic violations are full of shit but i had been let off on a warning I have I have been let off on warnings before by cops for speeding. Yeah. Um, and they were both in Fayetteville, which is my hometown, and they were actually both white cops. So cool, I guess. Um, and warnings don't go in the system when you get pulled over. Um, so, like, other cops can't see, like, oh, you've been issued a warning before, right? Okay. But I was in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I was speeding and going... Like, I was going fast. I was going in, like, 80 and a 55. Um, it was, like, one of those... It was one of those, like, speed traps on a highway where, like, it drops from, like, 70 to 55 really quick. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a cop waiting there. It was, like, 1 in the morning. Um, and I was, like... You know, I wasn't, like, drinking or anything like that. And um, I was obviously written a ticket. And I was told by the judge... That if I go to, like, if I go to, um, if I go to, like, a class and, um, do some community service, that my ticket would be reduced to a normal, like, you know, to, to, like, a very, very minor moving violation that, like, wouldn't, that wouldn't show up on my driving record, right? Yeah. And so... I do the things, I come back to court, and I have to go to, like, the kind of court where, it's traffic court, essentially, where you you walk in, there's, like, 80 people in the courtroom, they're all waiting to be seen by the judge, the judge and the judge is, like, rapid firing, like, seeing people, and whatever. So, when I get, <laughs> when I get up before the judge, it it's a white judge, obviously, and he... Um, he lectures me for, and this is after I've done my class on my community service, he lectures me for at least 20 minutes about the dangers of speeding and about how I was reckless and I put people's lives at risk and I should be ashamed of myself. And then he issued me $400 in fines. And then I, um, I, like two or three years ago, was trying to be an Uber driver and that's when I realized that it hadn't even been removed from my record. It's still on my driving record, the, the speeding ticket, like oh, as wow. as what it was, you know, um, like no reduced form. Like it was like and like it prevented me in a very minor way, but prevented me from getting future work. Right. Yeah. And. And I was like, you know, at the time I was like, I wonder if like I got four hundred dollars in fines because I'm a black guy. And because I'd known other people that had been speeding, you know, obviously I've known white ladies that have gotten pulled over 
going just as fast if not faster and then like gotten like the, the guy's like i'll reduce it to nine, nine over for you you know or whatever yeah um and <laughs> yeah and i think that like you know i'll always wonder like damn was like was was i like being made an example of <laughs> um but i think that just the fact that our legal system allows for that kind of variation right for like why are judges allowed to just assign fines to people that aren't unan that aren't uniform for the same crime like why is that allowed <laughs> yeah because i think that people like look at flexibilities and system like that systems like that and assume that what it means is that people will be as opposed to just having like an algorithm where it's just a camera and it sends you something right yeah. is that they assume that people in real life will be nicer or yeah. will be more fair and yeah, you can explain yourself in the extenuating circumstances that made you you're like oh no i was rushing to the hospital so that my wife could give birth right but yeah. like what actually happens i'm sure is that it just <laughs> screws people over more yeah right? it just it just allows for it just allows for judges to use extreme prejudice and bias when they when they make their decisions right and like and maybe we would be better off if we were just like if we if we really feel it so strongly that those laws have to be enforced strictly at least just do it via like algorithm or something yeah i mean like i was told <laughs> i was told to do community service and to go to a class that costs money by the way that <laughs> that if i did those things that i would you know that i would like receive a certain punishment or receive a lesson a lesser punishment and i ended up receiving the same exact punishment that i received anyway and how do you even check whether it's on your record or not i Is did there like i had never I, had, I i just assumed that it wasn't there you know yeah. i assumed that the courts did what they said they were going to do and the only way for you to know is because uber then said oh you have a record you have this thing on your record yeah because uber did a background check and they were like and they were like oh just so you like this we denied you and this is why you were denied is there any way for you even you to for you to even see your own record? Do you have to uh, go somewhere, or I do think, you have to like go online? I think criminal records are public record. I think you can. I think there's probably some database that you can query. Can you look up other people? Yeah, you definitely can. Oh, interesting. I've never tried to do that. Yeah, getting that's. <laughs> I think people often forget. Like when you get convict when you get convicted of a crime, it is like fully public record, mm -hmm. and it gets it gets published somewhere. Like yeah. Did you ever, like, in the newspapers growing up, did you ever see those, like, you know, like, we had, like, a dedicated section on newspaper for, for people that had committed crimes that, that week. And they Weird. were, it was, like, all of their mugshots. What? Yeah. It would be, like, I it would be, like, so-and-so was convicted for armed robbery this week. Yeah. And, yeah, so that was in my newspaper. <laughs> well, I, we had that... In our Swarthmore newspaper, because I had to write up a bunch of those, like we always had like the public safety logs, they would send it to us every week. And I had to type up like, oh, yes, like, you know, these people set off a fire extinguisher or these people drunkenly flash somebody, blah, 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 blah. And it was like very amusing and fun at the yeah. time, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, th that is amusing and fun. It sounds amusing and fun. Yeah, but it's also kind of like I I I didn't take it serious. Like if it was if it was like actual real public record in real life, it wouldn't have been probably as funny because then you're like, oh shit, like this person's probably not gonna get a job because of this <laughs> <laughs> for the rest of their fucking lives. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um. So yeah, like I mean, as like I think that like as someone 
that was really skeptical skeptical of like the defunding police kind of like community policing community policing models coming into sort of learning about this topic topic i feel like i'm kind of like i've kind of fully a convert now oh yeah me too i mean literally like if you just go down the list of like traffic stops let's just like you know have cameras do it right you don't need a person to do that yeah, at all you literally don't like it there's no there's no need for cops to be waiting on the side of the road they yeah just, like so much of the menial shit that co- that cops do right parking tickets speeding tickets like whatever right like all super automatable yeah. right you don't need a real person to do that at all yeah and just like john oliver said in that clip like yeah i wholly believe that we ask cops to do too much yeah but it would seem like you know like according to like the rhetoric of a lot of like police unions and things like that that cops kind of want to be able to have like this really 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 like tight hold on society with all the like with all the quote-unquote services that they provide you know yeah like i think issue is also that you got, you can't it's hard to justify funding other types of initiatives even if those would be better suited for you know those particular situations right like mental health is you know just endemically unfunded right right and, and like even when they do fund it often like a new a new uh you know generation of legislators will come in right and they'll be like wait why are we spending money on this this is dumb <laughs> right <laughs> yeah like you it's just it's wild, man. Like I, we were talking about this on my housemates and I with on our porch a couple of days ago, and I think you know one of the main problems with this kind of initiative and with so many other initiatives is that because that there because there isn't a like really big model that we can follow. Um, like there are a couple of pockets of like you know Cure Violence is doing it and. Like there's some programs in Oakland that I know are giving it giving it a shot with with success, but because there's no like you know blueprint that's gonna work for every single case, it like our it makes it really hard to like create these kind of like endemic changes within the government system that we have because I think this kind of change is gonna need iteration and our government does not iterate well. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing where it's I think it's a, it's very similar to TSA, right? There's been so many so many so many studies, right, saying that TSA is incredibly ineffective. Like <laughs> they right, they do all of these tests where they send people with real bombs like through as like decoys to see if the TSA will catch it and they catch like you know, one out of every 50 or something, right? <laughs> and nice. like we it is just like common knowledge I think in policy circles that TSA is not a useful yeah. thing but if you're the first politician to say let's get rid of this this is just security theater and then something does happen then you're just completely fucked as a politician right yeah and it's yeah and it's and i think there's also a um a big like job preservation component to it right like, oh for sure it's very like sticky right once people have these jobs it's not like they want to be retrained as mental health counselors yeah it's you like know? you know and that's the same reasoning it's you know we hear that language around cops i think like yeah you know and even more so i think we hear that language around people that work in like coal and natural gas and like oil and things like that when but to me you know it seems like there is a pretty clear place where those people could go which is like we should train them to work in green energy like clearly we should (laughs) um but 
yeah it's like you know it's it's all it's all about political points and doing making a decision that costs people a lot of people jobs at once is never going to be something that's going to score quote-unquote political points yeah but which is why i actually think that it seems like what's going on right now is super effective because if it's all about political willpower, right, and like what people are going to vote for, I do think that this is probably like having all these Instagram campaigns, having all these protests, like having all like all of this like really kind of education and outreach initiatives is I I mean, I don't think it's going to happen immediately. Right. But it is crazy that they got Minneapolis to say, OK, we're going to, you know, liquidate our, our police department. Yeah. And right? I, yeah, I wonder I wonder if that, like, I wonder if that was just all public pressure, you know? It does seem like it was because it doesn't, like, why would they ever have had any pressing, like, impetus to do that before? Yeah, I mean. Right? It's Yeah, like, it's, I guess it's just, like, public pressure and, you know, being able to see that, like, the police department as it stands in Minneapolis was probably, like, never going to be able to have a healthy relationship with that community ever again. Right? Like, oh, for sure. There's com- no way. It was completely devolved. And, and like, and like, it wasn't healthy before, right? But I think that there was no way that that, that, that department was going to be able to have even a functioning relationship with the, like, with the community, right? Like, I think people would have, would actively, like, have, like, extremely negative reactions whenever a cop would show up. And it would just, like, yeah. prevent them from quote unquote doing their jobs, whatever that is, you know? Yeah. Especially because it seems like they were one of the most liberal police departments like that I've heard of. Right. Because they did have a lot of those, you know, those like eight can't wait initiatives that they're trying to say, Oh, body cams, like no chokeholds, blah, 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 blah. All these different things that they're proposing. They had most of it actually. Yeah. And, but the thing is that like, you know, as, as we talked about earlier on this podcast and what you, and like what I've come to learn, like all that is just theater, right? We've learned that all that is like performative, per- performative progression because when it came down to it, the person that killed George Floyd had 19 prior fucking, uh, prior complaints, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So there wasn't anything backing it up. And And what also is crazy about it from a liberalism perspective is it seems like a lot of the reason why he wasn't thrown out is actually because of unions, which is like a liberal thing that liberals like. I was like, when I was watching the the John Oliver thing, I was like, damn, dude, like, this is the thing. Like, I feel like unions are such a unanimously like liberal thing thing, amongst progressives, right? Exactly. Everyone wants just just wants there to be more unions, right? Yeah. But like. (laughs) <laughs> and this is literally but, the perfect example of unions really working. Yeah, unions are working really, really well. And yeah. and they're negotiating their contracts really well and they're getting and they're getting like, you know, language inserted in, in officers' contracts that make it really hard for them to get fired. Or even just prosecuted for anything. It just seems like it, the unions are literally making these people above the law. Like yeah. can you imagine if unions did that for literally any other group of people? <laughs> like you know, and like this might, you know, this is going to sound ignorant, but I I I don't feel like the cops needed unions like the people that worked in factories needed unions. I feel like I don't I don't think like But that's who, probably why the cops got the unions and the people in the factories didn't. Yeah. I mean, right? I think that the I think that they both got unions, but I think that I think that, you know, 
a factory workers union has a probably a lot tougher of a time negotiating the language that cops were able to negotiate into their contracts. Well, I think it's also in, in it, like if you're a cop trying to argue for like, you know, this thing, you know, to, to have this power. Right. You have a lot more leverage being like, oh, my God, like people are going to die if you don't give us yeah, these protections I mean, versus more, what can the Screenwriters Guild say? Like, oh, yeah, you're <laughs> not, right. That's like what, what, you know, John Oliver was saying. Right. Yeah. Is that like there's no there's no, they don't have any leverage at all. Yeah. And even in a less even in a less passive way than what you said. We've seen instances where cop units are literally like, oh, you don't like you don't you want us to take a step back? Well, maybe we just stop responding to murders or like maybe we just, you know, like like we maybe we take a step back and people people start to get hurt. Yeah. And then what? And like like literally fear mongering, like literally like threatening. Right. Yeah. And that's something you're right. That's something that that's the Screenwriters Guild could never do. <laughs> like there will always be more people that you know want to be a writer for john oliver or whatever um but the language around like this like the the copy is like you know if we all decide that we don't if we go on strike then you're all just gonna die <laughs> yeah yeah and it's so easy for there's like this negativity bias of where we always like you know we're actually you know things in america are getting better or things around the world are getting more safe and yet we because there's so much exposure to like when crimes do happen now because of the 24 hours news cycle, everybody thinks that they're living in a way worse, like less safe world. Yeah. Right. And like, don't want to let their kids outside, even though people 60 years ago were fine with it. And it was actually way more crime was going on then. Right. Yep. It's so easy to imagine yourself in this like worst case scenario. And it's like, and imagining the fear that you would feel, even if that scenario was really, really, really unlikely. Mm hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right? Damn, damn. This is one place where I think that most of the time I feel like we put too much stock in like statistics and not enough qualitative, you know, stuff, especially because you know, all these tech companies are like, oh, we're going to collect all this data. And then, I, and then I often have the sense that like, but do you really know what the data means or is it right. just right? But this is actually one of those cases where probably like listening to the statistics is actually more informative than listening to people's personal anecdotes. Yeah. Right? I mean, I think that the problem with like the qualitative data in the situation, because it seems like there's an abundance of qualitative data as it relates to cops, right? Oh, for sure. Everyone yeah. has a story, like whether it be positive or negative about an interaction with the police, because there's such a ubiquitous force um, in our country. And, and it seemed like, yeah, like there's an abundance of qualitative information, but, but it wasn't, I, you know, it wasn't, I think that it wasn't unanimous enough. Right. Like, yeah. I think and like and I think that who was telling the story has always really, really mattered. Like police brutality is a narrative that um, in the black community is a narrative that's, you know, as old as the fucking time itself. Yeah. <laughs> but but because we were the ones that were telling the stories, no one really gave a fuck um, yeah. for a long time. And it seems like mm -hmm. people are starting to give a fuck now, which is cool. But yeah, I think you're right. Like in this case, I mean, I think in most cases, it's always a balance of qualitative and quantitative. Because the qualitative explains the quantitative. The quantitative is just numbers, and the qualitative explains like the experiences behind that. Um, but I think this is a good example of what happens when you have too much of one, or you rely too heavily on one thing, or like when both aspects of data aren't being respected, like they should be respected. Because mm -hmm. um, I think for every 
positive interaction or for every negative interaction that a black person would have with the police, someone would counter, like someone would counter often that was white would be like, oh, well, a police officer saved my life or a police officer responded to my home to, to like, know my home getting robbed or whatever. Or like, you know, like one time I had, you know, I dapped up a police officer and that was dope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and um, like those white people are going to just have more time and energy to present their stories. Right. Yeah. Rather than the white than the black people who are constantly working and who just like, you know, have way more shit going on. Yeah. And like cops are like, you know, I feel like a lot, like, I don't want to say most, but a lot of families just have cops in them, right? Like, a lot, you are probably, like, somewhere, somewhere along your family tree of people that, like, you know, amongst your cousins or your aunts or uncles, there's probably a cop somewhere. And, (laughs) um, like, I'm thinking, I mean, I, I have literally, you know, like, hundreds of cousins that I don't know about. So, like, likely, likely at least one of them is a cop. And -hmm. the point is that, like, yeah, like, these... This is such a large force. It's ubiquitous. Almost every single city or township has a police force. Um, and it just, it hasn't felt movable. Yeah. But like, you know, like with most movements with like the voices of millions of people behind you, it feels like it's a thing that can be done. Yeah, for sure. Especially because it does seem like really attractive to think about like, wow, like what if we did, you know, just like put more money into shelters and soup kitchens and mental health? Right. Like, let's just like, dude, let's just try it, man. Like, let's just give it a shot. (laughs) Just do it for two years and see what happens, man. Like, yeah. And if it doesn't work, then we can go back to the drawing board. But I I think that like, yeah, like the political scape is has always been has always been scaring people into being into like taking the chance. I know it does feel like we are at a really critical juncture in history where it's like maybe like it seems unlikely, but it like maybe we're going to start seeing some pretty radical like shifts in policing norms, you know, in the next like 10 years or something. Yeah, right? maybe we'll see because I'm both <laughs> both of the presidential candidates that we have right now are Not pretty that. are very pro police. But that's why I'm saying it doesn't really matter what the president is doing. Yeah. It matters more what the mayors and the governors are doing. I yeah, think. that's definitely true. You know, that's definitely true. And I think that and I think that the shift that we that we're seeing now is more people hopefully becoming aware and more active in their local politics to see like to. And because that's, you know, that it does seem to be like where these like where these changes are made. Right. Like the, Absolutely. The Minneapolis City Council decided to disband their their police force. Yeah. Like locally, we could literally just like go to you know meetings and be like hey like let's actually try to get more support for cure violence and you know if they're if they're actively here we just i mean i didn't even know about it yeah i didn't know they were here either right so yeah that's probably something that all of us like you know just every individual person who's part of a community could do more Yeah, I mean, as I said in this episode, this is one of the things where, and I feel like this happens pretty rarely for probably both of us, but more so for me, where I come into an episode not really knowing what was up, not really knowing how I felt about a thing, and I come out feeling like like I have my answers. <laughs> like, I feel mm-hmm. like I typically come into a topic having a pretty strong, like, preconceived or premeditated answer or stance, you know? 
And well, so, sometimes you just got to work through it. I think partially we just didn't know the facts until we kind of talked through it together. Yeah. Right? Because, yeah. like, I literally had just discovered this, like, notion of treating violence as a disease kind of thing, which is so funny because so much of the of the rhetoric around how to get people to take public health more seriously is to tell people to start treating it like a national security issue, right? And this is like <laughs> turning it on its head and being like, let's take a national security issue and take it and make it public health, you know? Yeah, and, yeah, and right, and like that, I think we see that rhetoric a lot in, in trying to get people to just change the way that they interact with certain topics, like drug abuse, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, people want that, like, yeah, like, think about it as a public health issue. Think about violence as a public health issue. Think about <laughs> what I've seen now is like, I saw the hot take, the, the hot take was like, yo, police brutality is a public health issue. Mm-hmm. Like one in every 1000 black men will, will die from police brutality. That is a public health issue. Yeah. Um, and that's wild and true. <laughs> I mean, it's almost as if you could start thinking of there being a hundred percent overlap in public health issues and like, national security issues right because both involve people dying right (laughs) yes and if like presumably if you care about putting money into national security because you're worried about people dying (laughs) and you should care about public health and vice versa right yes um let's end with um one fun or exciting thing that happened to us in the past week um i'll start me and my partner celebrated a three-year anniversary and went to a tiny house in West Virginia and kicked it kicked it there on a farm. Um, nobody in West Virginia wears masks, by the way. <laughs> Not a single human being, which makes sense. Coronavirus isn't really a big deal for them, but it was just wild coming from a place where it's like everyone takes it so seriously to a place where nobody takes it seriously. Well, maybe you will introduce it to them and they'll start to have, taking, have to yeah. take it seriously. I mean, we were wearing masks, but we'll see because it's not supposed to. I mean, hopefully. Hopefully yeah. I didn't give it to them. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the thing about all these protests is like people are all getting tested after. And I'm like, no, you should really get tested before you go to the protest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, what's the point? <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, for me, I don't, I, I mean, I'm, I moved back to DC, so that's kind of exciting. I was like <laughs> too overwhelmed being in Philly. And so I now live in a house with two Shiba Inus, which is really nice. Yeah, it's very cute. Yeah. Because <laughs> the damage is done after, dude. Like you were already there and you already gave it to people. Like that's, that's, Yeah. that's cute cool um well as always if you heard anything that you liked or you didn't like if you learned a lot about like defunding the police like isabel and i did let us know or if you like aggressively disagree and you think that like we need to have a police state forever also let us know um and you can do that at I'm the Villain, which is our Twitter, our Instagram, and our Gmail. Uh, otherwise, bye.